Welcome to Liberty's Talk, the podcast of Liberty's Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberty's and the host of this podcast on which I talk with our writers and the larger Liberty circle about whatever is on our minds. On this episode, I'm joined by William Derezowitz to discuss his most recent book, which is entitled The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. Uh, the publication date for that book is August 23rd. Um, and this conversation was just fascinating. I really enjoyed reading the book. The book is made up of essays written over the past 30 years and a couple original essays as well. Um, but by the end of reading the book, you've, you've watched the world we all now inhabit take shape through William Derezowitz's eyes. And he has such keen insights um, and, and in many cases was prescient about how uh, the changes that we all underwent in those years shaped us as a society as well as individuals. Um, I hope that you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Hello, William Zarezowitz. Welcome to Liberty's Talk. Thank you, Celeste, for having me on. So the subject of this episode is your upcoming book, which I think it comes out this month. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. August 23rd. Yes. August 23rd. Okay, congratulations. Um, and I, I finished it a little while ago and have just been going over it and over it. There are certain essays that, um, it's, it's really interesting to read them because it's like watching, it's like watching the world that I was bequeathed take form. Um, it's a strange, it's kind of a strange feeling, but I I like resist Hmm. looking at that. You have the date at the end of every essay for when you wrote it, not chronological. Um, and I try to guess like when this is happening because you have, you have, you kind of forecast th- uh-huh. and there are lots of um, like sort of the conditions of my world that are just what I take for granted. You're, you are watching them calcify. Um, yeah. Right. Like social media. Like social um, media. Yeah. And I made a, I made a deliberate decision not to try to update any of the essays. Like there's, one essay on social media where I mentioned MySpace. Yes. <laughs> which, right? And I know that it probably brings a contemporary reader up short because uh, it, you know, it feels like something from the 17th century. <laughs> um, I actually, I, I like remember fumbling over that and thinking, I have no idea what MySpace was like. That was like right before right. me. Um, right. I like But that's it. also, yeah. But that's also why, Instead of doing that, I decided to put the dates at the end. Yeah. So everything was time-stamped. Yeah. And it feels I, – I liked feeling destabilized in that way because you see how um, prescient you were. You know, you didn't, you didn't cheat by going back and changing little bits to make it clear that, you know, like I trust right, that you actually right. foresaw all of this. Um, yeah. And, and it's, it's a little bit – it's very strange because it's, it's – as I say, it's conditions that I take for granted that I, I like live inside the, the vortex that yeah. you predicted. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the title of the book is The End of Solitude, which is also the title. I think it's the first essay in the book, right? The first essay, yeah. So can we just talk first about uh, what you mean by solitude and, um, and then we'll go on to what you mean by the end of it? Yeah, I mean... Um... I, I had written a previous essay that just just in passing referenced 
sort of the decline of solitude. And an editor asked me to expand on that. So it forced me to think about it for the first time. Like, well, what, what does it mean? And also, is there a history to it? Is my perception that solitude was suddenly being seized from us? And this is really, I mean, that essay is really my, uh, a chronicle of my reaction to like my first year on Facebook. You know, I joined in 2008 when a lot of my friends were. Maybe that's when roughly my whole age cohort joined. I was in my mid-40s at that point. And uh, so, I, so I, I wanted to go back in that essay and think about, you know, uh, I mean, you know, is solitude, is solitude always been a value? Is this, uh, you know, what exactly am I lamenting? Is this just a, was it a modern phenomenon? Uh, to begin with, uh, and what is it? And so in the essay, I make the, I think, the necessary distinction in bringing the question into focus uh, between solitude and loneliness or solitude and aloneness, right? So, I mean, aloneness, let's say aloneness is just an objective state. You can look in someone and see whether they're alone or not. Uh, loneliness and solitude, I think, or at least for the purposes of essay, I'm defining, this essay, I'm defining it this way, are uh, different and, in many ways, antithetical responses, subjective responses to that condition. So loneliness feels empty. It feels sad. Um, and solitude feels, I think, I think full. Uh, it can feel like a plenitude. And I think about Whitman's idleness, you know, putting yourself in a, in a state of, where you can allow the world to come in and fill you yeah, in a good way, right? Not in the sense of the social media way where it's, you know, which is what I think, which is what's taking our solitude away is precisely that cacophony of social media. Yeah. There's a kind of um, intelligent receptivity that mm. that's, that's what I, that was the kind of understanding of solitude that I got from that essay that I think is, it's it's very active. It's very difficult to cultivate that kind of receptive intelligence because um, you can't you can't be doing anything other than thinking really hard. Um, you know, and aloneness is not an act. It's not a. It's not active. It's sort of it's sort of a passive response. It can be a passive response to being in a cacophony, as you say, um, but it, it doesn't require any kind of um, exertion, I think. Yeah. But I wouldn't say that the exertion that solitude requires necessarily involves thinking. I mean, it can, but I think it's really attention. Attention. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot more recently for a variety of reasons, including because I, I, a few months ago, I read Simone Weil's essay, uh, and I can never remember the title but it's her essay about education, or it's an essay about education. Mm -hmm. um, and she says, really, it's not about anything that you've learned. It's about training you to be able to pay attention to something. Yeah. Uh, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and I think she even talks about it there as a form of receptivity to the world, which maybe for her also means to the divine. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think that's the essence of it. And I think it can manifest in different ways. Um, and thinking, I think, 
can be one of them uh, if we, but, you know, certain kinds of thinking and definitely not certain other kinds. Yeah. I think. I don't know, is that too abstract? No, actually, I wanted to talk to you. I'm glad that you said that because I wanted to talk to you about um, two related concepts in the book that um, also kind of I found arresting one of them and I can't, I, I know that I underlined it in my copy and I cannot find it. But in one of them, you're defining high art and it's not in, it's not in the essay about um, like the, probably the mass cult one. It's, it's probably the food essay. Oh, maybe it is. Maybe it is food art. That's probably no. where it is. Yeah. <laughs> right. I was looking and at this upper middle, which was so good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're probably right. It probably is in the, in the food art <laughs> yeah. essay. Um, so in, in it, you say that art has to contain an idea. And I think similar, I think that you used idea in that instance in a way similar to the way that I just used the word thinking, not to mean mm. like a specific thesis. And I, I was, I was struck by it, I think, because I don't think that art necessarily has to have an idea or at least not an idea. Like, I don't think that visual art has to have an idea the way that typically an essay does. Um, and it kind of irks me when art critics approach art as if, if it doesn't have an idea, they have to like mangle it so that they can make it have an idea. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I completely know what you mean. And you're right. I mean, I'm using idea in that context in a specific way that's not the normal way that we mean that word. And it's really, uh, me. I mean, what I mean is meaning, that, that, that art has meaning and food does not. I mean, food might have meaning to us, but food does not propose meanings. And I think for art to be art, it needs to propose meanings. Uh, I mean, another inadequate, easily misunderstood way of saying that is that art has content. Mm. Um, but it's content expressed through form. I mean, I, I, I use Arthur Danto's definition because I think it's, it's a, it, it says, it says, it captures my understanding perfectly that art is embodied meaning. An essay is meaning that's directly stated. Um, and art, art is meaning that's embodied and therefore, it's not just a different, I mean, I know you know all this. It's not just a different way to say the same thing. It's so it's difficult diff to say it. No, I know, I know exactly what you mean. It's so difficult to, to find words for it. Um, I did, I, I, this, for this reason, I, and for many other reasons, I really loved the Merce Cunningham essay. I thought that you did oh, this. Thanks. I mean, it first, first, just the content of the essay was, so well done so that it's so difficult to describe dance because you really just have yeah. to see it. Um, yeah. and, but you, you describe the mood of the Cunningham studio so, um, precisely that it really was like, I would, I really would have had a sense of what it would be like to watch even if I'd never seen it. And honestly, I, I've only ever seen videos of Cunningham, which I assume is, really inadequate. I mean, it's probably like seeing, only seeing photos of, you know, Manet or whatever. Yeah. Um, but also the form of the essay, it's so beautiful. It's so beautifully written. And. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> I, <laughs> also, I mean, uh, that, that piece and the Mark Morris piece yeah. were these two pieces that I reached back. I mean, all the other pieces date from like 2007 or later. 
Um, those two are from the mid nineties when I was a young dance critic in New York and those, you know, the, the, all of that stuff had been lost, but those were the, I mean, you, you know, some of the stuff isn't even online. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, but I, I mean, I, you know, I was proud of those pieces. They were kind of the culmination of my work as a dance critic mm-hmm. and those choreographers mean a great deal to me. And, um, I use this collection as an opportunity to, re- to resurrect those two, um, of all the ones that I wrote back then, of all the dance pieces I wrote back then. But also, I mean, um, Merce Cunningham and his work and the studio and taking class at that studio as an amateur twice a week for about five years during my last five years in graduate school in New York was an incredibly important experience for me. Um, uh, and, and, and um, I mean, just in my life, just in sort of, uh, in, in ways that maybe we can talk about, but also, uh, my my probably my first going to my first Cunningham concert. Uh, I think I was it was all it was back when I was taking a dance criticism class, um, like a couple of years after college, and so I was just going to lots of things that the teacher told us to go to, whether I knew anything about them or liked anything about them or not. And my initial response to Cunningham, like the first dance was like, was a lot of people's response to Cunningham. Like, what is this? This is ridiculous. Is this a joke? There's no story here. These people are doing weird things. And I was trying, my brain was like grinding and grinding to try to find some meaning, some story, some signification. And then just like, it was like a, like a ball rolling up to me, like, like a, like a child's errant ball on the beach that rolls up to you and hits you in the leg. It was like in the middle of the second act, that's what happened. You got and it. it was this just roll. I, and it was, and it was just let go of that. Mm-hmm. Just, just look at what it is. Mm-hmm. That's the meaning is what it is. The meaning is the form. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was incredibly, it was a delicious and liberating moment. Yeah. And that's, that's like, it's such a difficult thing to teach. And I think this is, this is like a concept that you, it, it like, it's an undercurrent in the book. And also I think in certainly in your essays for us, um, that distinction, being able to, to generate that response in a student is so difficult because you can describe it so many times, but you really have to you really have to put them in, in a, you have to like put, install them in an experience in which they're going to feel destabilized. Like they're going to feel thrownness and then just hope that they Mm. figure out how to, you know, that the ball rolls over to them. And if they don't have that moment, there's really nothing you can do. I guess that's true. Um, I've never, I've never thought about it like that. Um, and there's just so much crap. <laughs> I mean, in any context, there's so much crap that gets between um, a person, a, a member of the audience, and whatever work of art they're in- encountering. Yeah, and, and it can also- be political crap. It could be p- theoretical crap. It could be all kinds of stuff. And and getting it out of the way, yeah, like you said, I mean, you can only kind of point to it and and hope that somebody sees it. You really have to have teachers who point you in the right direction because it's so difficult to develop taste, like to, to acquire a gut, to know whether or not you're seeing the real thing. And it's, you, you just have to be, you have to have somebody telling you. And that's another thing that I, 
I really loved about the book is that through the through these essays, one begins to um, have a sense of your library, like the mm-hmm. not just not just like the books that are on your shelf, but the ones that I kind of picture it like the ones by your bedstand, the really the ones that you reach mm-hmm. for a lot. There are a couple of names mm-hmm. that flow through the yes, book they like keep a river. Coming up. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I, um, I love, yeah. I, you know, that's such an exciting thing when you find, like, um, I read, the, I read a biography of Emerson. I also love Emerson. You clearly, you clearly love Emerson. Um, he's he's one of the names that comes up a lot. And I read the biography of him, uh, Mind on Fire. Like I had a list, I kept a list of all the books that he read because I wanted to know, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to feel close mm-hmm. to him, but also I wanted to know. And I also, I kept a yeah. list of like all of the titles that you mentioned that I haven't read or that I uh, didn't properly appreciate because especially, I mean, I've read, I've read Heart of Darkness, but now I want to go back and read it again because mm-hmm. not just because it's clearly important to you, but also because it explains so much of the inanities that we live through. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that before. That I read it as a book about bureaucracy. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's, of course it's about other things too, but yes, it really struck me. And as they say, only because the head bureaucrat reminded me of the chairman of the department that I was teaching at the time. Yeah. But, um, (laughs) but, but yeah, but I, I, I do think that's a big part of the book. Of, of Heart of Darkness. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, some of the best, I mean, I, I think some of the best things that a critic can give you are, you know, leads on on other books. I mean, I, I, I often find, that's how I know I'm reading a critic, uh, you know, um, I'm hoping to write about, planning to write about Elizabeth Hartwick for you guys. Yeah. And uh, so I had so many books uh, that, I've, that I've tracked down on her say-so. Uh, after reading through, reading through her work, yeah. it's like having a teacher, like a, you know, like yes, yes. But I should say, I mean, you know, ta- I mean, and and taste is, you know, I think if it's real taste, it is idiosyncratic. People ask me, I mean, young people, but not even just young people, recommend recommend uh, a list of books for me, and I, I I can't possibly do that, and that's what I say that I say that to them, mm. and 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 there was. You know, someone who, I don't know, he was like a ex-military businessman in, in Kansas or something and asked me to recommend. And I'm like, well, I mean, you know, am I going to tell him to read The New York Intellectuals? Am I going to tell him to read Trilling and Kazin and Rosenberg? Okay. I mean, those were incredibly important to me, but I, don't, I have a feeling they're not really going to speak to him. Um, just because he's a completely different person with a completely different background. Yeah. So for solitude and for the end of solitude, now that we have kind of a sense of what solitude is and why it's a good thing to be alone in front of a work, um, what is what is it threatened by? Mm-hmm. And And then I do want to talk to you about generational analyses and how much value you, you attribute to them. Sure. Well, I mean, that I mean, I, I associate solitude with stillness, a kind of inner stillness, or as I said before, attention or concentration. You know, I, I sort of think through that word a little bit in one of the essays and how it means to gather into a single point. 
So it's like you're gathering yourself into a single point. And as I, as I said before, and as everybody knows, as everybody experiences every day, the online cacophony just prevents any of us, just, just disrupts that stillness constantly. Or, and if it's not you know, online, it's, it's the text messages we're getting on our phone. It's everything that happens to us on those devices and the way that it's you know, made it impossible for us to pay attention to anything. I mean, it's become a cliche now. We can't people, you know, lifelong readers, even writers who say that they can't concentrate on a, on a novel for more than the length of a paragraph. So, I mean, you know, we really are living through, I was just, it just hit me actually earlier today. I don't even know why. And it's just, it's just one of these obvious things, but it just, the force of it hit me, which is that um, we're really not going back from this. Like, Probably, unless there's like a, a civilizational collapse, which makes this, which renders this technology impossible to, to maintain, this is going to be the human future. We're going to be on the internet or some version of the internet, really, I mean, for the foreseeable and likely very long future. So, and it's, I mean, it's quite something to live right at the beginning of this incredible fundamental shift in, in consciousness, in, in, in the subjective experience of being human. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you describe these essays straddle the fault line because yeah. Some of them are written before and most yeah. of them are written afterwards. I yeah. don't know I don't know a before time. Um, right. Right. But it's it's a strange thing. You know, what it <laughs> do I even know what concentration is if all I've ever done is exist inside this world? Um so mm. I think I think for for someone like me, my age who has the interests that I have um, and you know the friends that I have, and I know that I know that young people do read books because the only people I'm friends with are the young people who read books. Yeah. Um, it's it's strange to hear someone say that there is no concentration on the other side, or that there was this um, there was this kind of intimacy with text and art that existed, you know, in the before days that. I will never know. I guess it's kind of like, and we both have this experience. It's kind of like not keeping Shabbat anymore. Um, because, and I think I actually, Oh, do you not find that? I think about this all the time because it's like, I, I wish I can't go back obviously, but I, I sometimes fantasize about just, just keeping Shabbat, like not, not going to shul, not doing any of the, not obeying any of the halakha, except like, not using my phone, not using my computer, you not, yeah. you know? Yeah, it forces um, you to, to right, it, right. You, have, you can't use any elect- electricity or electronics. I see what yeah. you mean. But look, you know, I mean, I, I am not, I'm not saying, I wouldn't say that you and the friends you just described can't experience, have never experienced the concentration that me and all the other olds know <laughs> instinctively. Because, look... I also was born into the middle of a world-altering technology. In retrospect, not as world-altering, but still pretty significant, and that is television. And I grew up watching literally 
five hours of television a day when I was a little kid, probably through ninth or 10th grade. Um, and I've, and I, and I regret it, but it was, it's just the reality and, you know, it was all garbage and, uh, but I've managed to learn how to manage my relationship with television. So, um, I watched very little in college and then after college, there were like 12 years where I watched no television at all. I didn't have a television. I wasn't interested. It felt great. And I never, I thought I never would watch it ever again. And then, uh, this was like 1999, we were having our house painted and our, and, uh, our, and our painter uh, saw that we didn't have a TV and he said, how do you watch The Sopranos? He didn't yeah. say, how do you watch television or how do you watch HBO? He said, how do you, how do you watch question. The Sopranos? So <laughs> we, we got a TV and we started watching The Sopranos. And now, you know, I watch a little bit of television because it's finally worth my time, I think. Some of it, you know, a little bit of it is finally worth my time. So now I have a non-addictive relationship to television. I see. So okay. I think it's perfectly possible. And I'm guessing that you probably do a pretty good job managing your relationship with your devices? Uh, you know, not as good because as I should do. But yeah, I mean, it's it's not possible. Um, at, so, at some point, one has to be an adult and just develop some kind of system because otherwise you just like wouldn't get anything done. Every time an essay became difficult, every time I reached a point where I didn't want to be writing anymore, which frankly is all the time because I hate writing, um, I just pick up my phone. So, yeah. you know, you yeah. can't, you can't live that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. But okay. So is this, I want to just make sure I have a, a proper sense of the timeline. You were raised in a conservative family. I mean, conservative Jew, Jewish and then, and then moved into orthodoxy. No, and no, then, no. Oh no, no, no. Okay. No, it was, no, my, my family was modern orthodox. I mean, I think they were, I mean, they're, my parents are immigrants. They're from tr traditional backgrounds. You know, they never eat a, ate a piece of trafe in their entire lives. Never would have. But um, I think they were a little less observant as a young couple and when my older siblings were young. Like, they didn't go to shul every week. They were like the kind that had a kosher house but only went on the holidays. And they made a decision to get more into it, uh, you know, for the kids, for the sake of our Jewish identity. My older siblings were sent to Yeshiva Day School from first grade. So I, Which and then my, well, Where they were? went to Yavna. This was wow. North Jersey. And by yeah. the time I came along, Mariah had opened and we lived in Englewood where Mariah is located. So that's where okay. I went. Okay. And then I went to Frisch high school. Okay. Uh, so I grew up completely inside that world until the next thing that happened. <laughs> yeah. So Frisch was where you were evicted. They did I you that cruel favor. <laughs> it's it was it really was the turning point of all the turning points it was the chief turning point of my life i wish they'd uh, evicted me that would have made things so much easier um okay you so, also, then, so you also went to yeshiva day schools yeah it's actually a very similar story i went um my family became progressively more religious as i got older by high school i was in Kohala Yeshiva High School, which had been like Stern Hebrew High School before that in Lower Marion, like outside of Philadelphia. Um, and then I also went to Israel for for one year. I think you, did you move there? You mentioned that in one of the essays, um, that you lived there at some point. I lived there 
for uh, my my father took sabbaticals there, and then I so I lived there twice for a year as a kid, and then for the year after college. I didn't move there after college. I went. I knew that it was going to be a year, but I was thinking of moving there, of making Aliyah. Okay. Okay. So then it was the Orthodox community, and then it was the Zionist community from yes. camp. Um, yes. And, okay. And then Israel. Yes. For me, yes, correct. And then I realized okay. this is not where my path lies. But it sounds like you did. Did you do that post? Did you do a gap year at, in Israel? Yeah, I studied at Migdalos, which is a midrasha. Um, like in a frat, or actually, it's not even in oh, a wow. frat. It's outside of a frat. Oh yes, quite so bad. So one of those intense that 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 thing that was a phenomenon that postdates me. This sort of yeah. sort of standard. You go to yeshiva high school and then you spend like a year becoming really crazy orthodox <laughs> in Israel. Yeah, or becoming really alienated. In my case, I think yeah. that it's yeah. Also, for me. Um, you know, the program that I was on was one of, if you were, a, you know, high achieving female and wore long skirts, then you had to go to like one of two programs. This was the harder one because it was all in Hebrew. Um, so that was the one that I went to. And um, yeah, it's just the similar, I think it actually, it was, it was painful in that no one actually said to me, you have to leave. They just all treated me like I should have known that I should have left. Um, no yeah, I mean, not, I don't think that they meant to be cruel. It was just, I had questions that like nobody, it, they didn't tell me I wasn't allowed to ask questions. They just looked at me like I was insane for wanting to. Um, and it's actually yeah. similar to the way that you describe elite education. Like it would just never occur to them that this was not the be all and end all. And that everybody didn't want to be there. Um, I remember like when I, I actually, yeah. I left after, I left after Pesach. So I was still in Israel. I interned at a think tank, but I told my, um, like my teacher, my, uh, I forget what the name is for like specifically the Gemara teacher, but she, my Gemara teacher, my, like the head of my Kvitsa that I was leaving. And she was, she said, well, don't worry. You can always tell people that you went here and that you were really a member of the community as if like that was what I would be concerned about that I couldn't tell people that I went there anymore, you know, like it was very much not just tribal, but that this is like the highest Madriga. Uh, oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. So sounds like sounded very similar to the way that students at Yale would behave. Um, like right, it wasn't right. about the right. reward you were reaping from the education. It was, that was, secondary or tertiary right. it was really just the fact that you were there right and it would be inconceivable for anyone not to want to be there yeah i, or to I remember leave. when i when i when i got to yale as a faculty member there was a a, a junior professor who had been hired the year before me hmm. who was already on the job market because he just had to get the hell away from that environment and he got a job after one year at yale he took a job at the university of maryland baltimore county and no, I mean, it was like he had a, a third eye in the middle of his forehead. Nobody could make sense of this choice. And quite frankly, I couldn't at that point even make sense of this choice. Just like this person was leaving immediately. How How is this even possible? This is not the guy who said, I'm going to the beach. This That was the <laughs> 
that's, that's, a di- that's a different story. <laughs> that's a different story uh, that we can, I can, I can repeat yeah, if you'd like. Yeah, yeah. This was a story that a professor of mine told us when I was a first year graduate student. And it was a story that it took me many years to understand. He, he would tell us war stories often from his years in graduate school at UCLA. And there was a friend of his who had failed his orals for the first time. The first time. And, you know, everybody knew. I mean, that doesn't happen very often. And everybody knew that this was the day when he was going to retake them. And if he failed again, he was out of the program. And my professor, you know, as then graduate student, walked in, as he's walking into the building, the guy is walking out with a big grin on his face. And my first said, how did you do? I guess he assumed he'd probably passed. And the guy said, I failed. And my professor said, then why are you smiling? And he said, because I'm going to the beach. It's so great. <laughs> yeah, and it took me years to understand that that wasn't just about, you know, Southern Californians are happy as long as they can go to the beach no matter how much their life is falling apart. It's about, like, this environment sucks, and I'm finally free of it. Yeah, emancipation. Emancipation. And, and what you said before about your experience in Israel, hmm. and this was my experience... This has been a pattern in my life. This is my experience getting expelled from yeshiva high school, but that meant really getting expelled from that whole world. And then again, getting quote-unquote expelled from academia in the form of not being able to find my post-Yale job, which is that before they happened, they were inconceivable. And when I realized they were happening, I thought my, my life was over. Like, what else could, like, in other words, like the people that you talked about at the yeshiva, um, this is the only possible framework that can give life any meaning. Like, you're just a non If you're outside of this, you are a non-person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do wonder, and maybe this is, maybe I'm, I'm projecting, but I think there are, like, several successive communities from which you are expelled or, or, or that you remove yourself from intentionally and then find yourself in another community in which you're alienated. And I wonder whether um, subconsciously you fetishize alienation. Like you're oh, more it's not even subconscious, Celeste. It's completely <laughs> conscious. Do you, pers- um, do you pursue it? I mean, are you trying to, <laughs> to be unhappy? Is that, does it make oh, you more comfortable at least to not be, um, you know, in a room full of people where you feel at home? It's just something really kind of screwed up about me. I mean, I should say that, that you know, I, I have good friends with whom I feel deeply at home, and I love that feeling. But there definitely is something about me that causes me to pull away or polarize in relation to any kind of, you know, institutional or sort of institutional environment or any kind of, like, ideological or cognitive framework that, that's, that's supposed to enclose me. But let me just say, you know, uh, as you know, one of the pieces that's in the book is the first piece that I wrote for you guys, the one about Harold Rosenberg. And, and I mentioned that he, you, you use the word alienation, and he thought, that, he, he thought it was a big mistake to, to be down on alienation. He thought alienation was a really good thing and a really good sign because it meant that you weren't buying into, you know, dominant social and cultural modes, that you had that distance. And that's why I value it. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be, I mean, it can definitely, you know, if it's especially if it's sort of like this psychic need 
that it, that in my case it seems to be, I think you also need to step back from that and ask, you know, is this just fulfilling emotional needs or is there really something to criticize here? But I think that instinct to be skeptical and to disassociate and, and, not, and to not feel comfortable as part of a team and not, to not want to be on a team is really, really important, needless to say, especially now. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually, I was just at dinner with some friends and um, it was like three, it was like six people, but three of us were the kinds of people who no matter what you said, we were going to try and figure out if you were only saying that because you thought it was what everybody else wanted to hear and then disagree with you about it. So, and we were discussing something like, I mean, I, I, I brought up this subject because I knew it was going to be fun for us to all yell at each other about it. You know, the, um, the Pamela Paul op-ed from two weeks ago. So I was like, Oh, let's have some fun. I'll just throw this grenade up in the air and see what happens. And it was just like, everybody's saying things that they were only saying because they thought that whoever was sitting next to them was going to think the opposite. You know, they were just like, Oh, this crowd is going to be anti Paul. So I'm going to be pro Paul. This side is going to be, you know, just like trying to figure out. And I thought about it afterwards and I was like, you know, it's not a, it's not a coincidence that these are the people I'm friends with because I would have done Mm -hmm. exactly the same thing. And actually another example of this, which I'm, I, I started doing it and then I completely had to call myself out on it is the last essay in the book, oh, <laughs> which yeah. it, so what, why did you, why did you do that? So, so you're talking about the one about Israel. Yes. 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 Yeah. So first of all, we should clarify the Pamela Paul piece we're talking about is the one about gender, right? No, I'm talking about the book publishing one which is about, oh. it was more recent than that. Okay, so I'll, I'll just like give a, a short yeah. summary of it. She, she basically said what I think everyone knows to be true, which is that um, there, there is so much, um, there's so many etiquettes and rules inside the publishing industry about who is allowed to publish what and what writer is allowed to write what kind of thing. And you have to be yeah. like this gender and this color and this have this color eyes and you know have to yeah. be a brunette in order to write this kind of book. And yeah. everybody knows it. And I think that there's, I mean, I think that there was an anecdote in the, in the essay, something to the effect of like, she knows agents who will not pitch books by white men, even though they're great books because no publishing houses will take them. And like the two examples that she gave were, um, oh God, I'm going to forget the names now. There were two books who had been accepted for publication by, you know, two of the biggest publishing houses. And then there was a revolt inside of the houses. And one of, oh, it was Mike Pence and Schreier. Abigail Abigail Schreier. Schreier. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Schreier's book got canceled and Pence's didn't or something like that. Um, And the, the, the argument so I just, I, I thought it was a great op-ed. I'm glad that she wrote it. I think that it is definitely true yeah. and a thing that people that people are afraid to say. One thing that really bothered me about the response to the op-ed is like every writer who is afraid of being canceled, who like knows that this is actually a problem, but also saw that there were like factual errors or bad arguments in the op-ed, jumped on mm-hmm. Twitter to say that it was poorly crafted 
because they wanted to be on record disagreeing with the op-ed, even though I think they didn't disagree with like the essential points of the op-ed. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was just that kind of thing. Like I wanted also like the people I was having dinner with were all writers. Um, I just thought it would, I wanted it to be a thing that we talked about. I wanted to know, I just thought it would be a fun social experiment. Yeah, to see look, how I mean, this is, that. but yeah, this is the, this is the great problem is that we can't talk about the things that we need to talk about. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So enough yeah. of that. How yeah. I felt about that. Speaking of which, you you want to uh, you want to you question to. you want to question my judgment in writing the last piece, which is I mean, it's a short piece. It's called Day of Atonement. Um, I wrote it some years ago, but I did decide to include it in the collection. Um, and it it does come across as a one sided piece about the Israel Palestinian conflict that blames Israel. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's what you have a problem with. And no, no. No. What do you have a no. problem with? Oh, okay. That's not what I have a problem with. What I have, what I couldn't understand is why you included it. Not, I guess, like the thing that I got, it got my backup for sure. I do understand. I, I think that anything that anybody writes about Israel who isn't me, I get angry about. That's what I was saying before. Mm. Like, no mm. matter what, this is a subject that no matter what, anybody talking is going to annoy me, even if I agree with what yeah. they're saying, because as everybody knows on this subject, um, I feel like the best you can do is say, I agree with everything you wrote and also with a lot of things you didn't write, which is how I felt mm. about what you did. But I guess it just surprised mm-hmm. me that it was in there because it hadn't been a subject that came up before. Um, and I oh, think that it was a way that the way that I, the way that I explained it to myself afterwards, and maybe you'll tell me that I was wrong in this is like one of the themes of the book is community and alienation and loyalty and feeling implicated by another community by your community, feeling implicated by your community, which is one of the yeah. ways of continuing to be inside it, even though you've done a lot of work to distance yourself from it. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot in the book. It kind of like crescendos up to the last section, which is sort of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of indication that community is bad. The community community can calcify you in a way that is dangerous. Um, that it, that like works against solitude. Um, probably more effectively than social media does. I think that like friends of mine who are still modern Mm. Orthodox are um, alone and not in solitary or I guess in solitude um, more than the friends of mine who are on social media. But the last section is really like, this is who I am. At least that's how I read it. And definitely the last piece, like the fact that you feel close enough to this world that you left, that you would atone on their behalf, that felt almost like a confession to me. Huh. Do you see what I'm saying? Well, okay. So the last section is about I call it my people. It's in their most their their essays about being Jewish. Uh, although in one of the pieces, I kind of define what I mean by my people, and it's not actually actually necessarily the Jews, yeah. but. Uh, um, uh, I, I, I'm afraid I just didn't intend that, that piece to mean that I didn't actually mean it, maybe it wasn't a particularly well thought out piece. 
Why did you um, include it? I don't actually, I mean, I thought at the time, I thought until five seconds ago that it was a fairly well thought out piece, but I don't actually mean that the Jews should all atone for, for many of the actions of the Israeli government. Um, I, I, I mean, Israel should, that Israelis should. Oh. I wrote the piece, yeah, I guess it's less interesting. I mean, I mean the truth, I mean, look, one of the, one of the things... You know, when we talk about Israel and Palestine, one of the things that I feel strongly about and that I most hated about Netanyahu is that he would claim to speak and act on behalf of all the Jews in the world. It's like, no, buddy, you're not acting on my behalf. And this is one of the things I hate about community leaders in general, those who claim to speak for the entire group. Uh, and And... The main reason the Prime Minister of Israel doesn't speak for all Jews is because we don't all get to vote for him. Only Israeli citizens get to vote for him. Um, I wrote the piece because... um, uh, I mean, I wrote the piece one year around Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which, you know, I know the irony here. It's not, I mean, I haven't... I haven't observed those or been anywhere near anyone who's observed those for decades, but I am aware when they come around on the calendar, and I'm also aware that the day after Rosh Hashanah, the first of the, the days in between is the fast of Gedalia, which commemorates this very specific historical event where a Jewish leader in Palestine was assassinated by fellow Jews, and that this brought disaster down on the whole community. And the rabbis instituted a fast as a form of uh, atonement or grief. And I've always felt, ever since Rabin was assassinated, I felt like there should be a fast of Rabin. But, I mean, that's not going to happen because the rab- some rabbis helped incite that assassination. Yeah. Um, so I think it was just, I mean, it was, it, it, I think it, it, it's, it's not a well-thought-out piece in the sense that it really expresses an emotion in, in, in intellectual form. You know what I mean? Like it's really an emotion that maybe needs to be qualified and confronted with other emotions or other thoughts before it's turned into a piece that then gets published because it is only part of what I think about that situation for sure. I certainly don't think that it's all Israel's fault. But I do think that... Um, that there is a lack of self. I don't know. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> I just, my next essay is about this. So. Really? I, yeah. <laughs> What's it about? Uh, to I'll, the extent I'll, that you're willing to talk about it now. I'll send it to you. I'll give, uh, it's funny that you mentioned Rabin. Um, do you know who Itamar ben Gavir is? No. He is, he is the, He's a sick individual. He is, um, you know, Mayor Kahana is. Yeah, yeah. He is like the Kahana, the contemporary Kahana. Yeah. He is a really vile human being, actually. And he he was like vaunted onto the national stage in Israel um, when he ripped the Cadillac um, logo off Rabin's car like a week before he was killed and then screamed at TV cameras, we got to your car, we'll get to Rabin too. Um, wow. And he is now the head of a 
party in Knesset called Otsma Yehudi, which means uh, like Jewish courage. And it, it polls indicate that it will be the fourth largest party after the next elections. So wow. that is what, that is more or less what the piece is about. It's, it's, wow. uh, yeah, but it's 8,306 words. And I hope that everybody who reads it reads all of them before they all yell at me about it because it's the same, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it was written. If I did it well, everybody will be angry at me for it. Um, yeah. especially my parents who might disown me. Um, but it's the same, it's the same, it's the same feeling. I tried really hard to not let it just be, you know, therapeutic. I tried hard to keep it as precise as possible, but I think it's, I think it's very difficult to um, temper loyalty or to try and contain it or to master it. I guess that's a difference. It's a big difference, I think, between the kind of membership that people have in political movements and the kind of like narrow, deep, absolutely um, binding loyalty that you feel to your tribe. And I do yeah. think that the subject of the book or the kind of the villain in, in this book is the former and not the latter. Maybe you'll disagree with me about that. Um, I think it's a much thinner kind of membership, not necessarily less corrupting, but thinner. I think that's fair. I mean, um, I have that whole last section about my Jewishness and my relationship to my Jewishness. And, and, it's, and, and, and the very fact that I have that, you know, I left, you know, I, I, I sort of almost self-expelled from orthodoxy when I was 15. I walked away from Zionism in my early 20s. Um, and I, I, you know, I was for a long time, I was sort of militantly anti-religious and I've, I'm sort of pr proudly don't practice um, resist all attempts at people to inveigle me to, you know, just come to a Seder or whatever. But here I am still writing about this. I mean, maybe the answer, the most interesting answer to your question about that Israel piece is the fact that I wrote it at all. And I still care enough. And I care. And I feel, and I do feel, I don't feel guilty for, I don't feel responsible for Israeli government actions. But I, I obviously care in a way that I don't care about the actions of other governments. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, I'm not going to say that I, I care more than I care about the actions of American the American government, but I care differently. And you're right. And the, and, and the fact that I wrote those, especially the two longer pieces in that section, one, one of the one, um, uh, one of the, in, you know, including birthrights, which is the second one I wrote for you guys, where I talk about my Orthodox upbringing, my Zionist youth and so on and so forth, um, is because I've gotten to the point where I can be not just simply dismissive, but really try to wrestle with, well, what exactly does this mean? And, 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 um, and it's just like you said, I mean, it is this bone deep affiliation um, that doesn't go away, but that I think you can you can, just like with social media or television, you can work through to a relationship 
with it and it, uh, that is not smothering yeah. i think yeah. i think that it's a very high bar to be able to achieve the kind of mastery self mastery that will allow you to be like in a jewish setting and be able to like tap into solitude i can't do that like i can't read jewish texts i can't go to synagogue um without my back getting up i wish that i could and that actually sounds like you were you have such facility with the history and with with it sounds like with the text like you know it you know it so well even though you were expelled from frisch so long ago um i can't do that like it's very difficult for me to immerse myself in it or even feel at home in it um no 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 i don't think i'm i think you're overestimating my my facility i don't i'm not i don't continue to have a relationship with jewish texts i mean jewish writers but that's a completely different story and i have the same reaction as you i mean i i i have often felt like the you know the things you get from religion are missing from my life uh, you know, I'm I'm a sort of sad secular modern, the kind of person Ross Delthit likes to write about. Um, <laughs> but but I've been cursed because I could. I mean, the idea, you know, as much as the some of the ideas, you know, or the figure of Jesus is sort of attractive. It's like there's no way that I could tolerate, you know, yeah. I mean, for a second, right? So it's got to be Judaism, but. Orthodoxy gives me an allergic reaction, like seriously, like a literal figurative allergic reaction. Like I'm instantly (laughs) grossed out. But at the same time, when I go to my friend's reconstructionist chavura for their, you know, kids bar mitzvah, it just feels fake to me. Yes. It's like, Catherine, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. You go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I've tried to say this to them. They're not very receptive to this. I feel like it's just kind of, you know, neo-pantheism. Huh. Pour, poured into Jewish bottles. That's surprising to me that they're not receptive of that criticism. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. Um, this is this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for discussing the book with me. I enjoyed it immensely and heartily recommend it to all of the readers, all of the listeners and the readers. And also, um, by the time that this episode is up, your essay for us, which will appear, oh, which is in the current issue of Liberties will be up in front of the paywall. Um, and the, that essay is called Soul Making Studies. And it is, it really complements a lot of the essays in the book so well. Um, so yeah. read the essay yeah. and buy the book. And thank you. Thank you so much for joining me, Bill. Thanks, uh, Celeste. I really wonderful. enjoyed our conversation. I did too. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I hope you will look up William Derezowitz's book entitled The End of Solitude, Essays on Culture and Society, and I hope you will order it. Um, And finally, as mentioned, uh, Bill's essay for us entitled Soul Making Studies is available for a limited time in front of our paywall, so definitely go to libertiesjournal.com and read it. Um, Thank you so much.